Well, let's get our Bibles out and open to Luke chapter 20, the 20th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. Uh, You can find that on the Pew Bible in front of you on page 1211. Uh, Be good for you to follow along. These verses uh, from the text won't come up on the screen today. You want to have your Bible out so you can follow through this story. I'm going to walk you through a story this morning where, yet again, Jesus is going to be confronted uh, by religious leaders. Now, remember, as we've looked at this chapter of Scripture, we've seen that it opened with uh, the chief priests and the scribes trying to take Jesus to task on His authority. And they wanted to know by what baptism uh, John the Baptist baptized by. And so we had that conversation. And then he told a parable which further infuriated the situation. He then was challenged again by a group of Herodians about uh, paying taxes uh, to Caesar. And so he, again, uh, in a way that only Jesus can, just uh, the Sadducees is going to come forward with this new riddle to try to trap Jesus in. And remember that all of this is taking place just hours after Jesus has cleansed the temple. He's gone into the temple. Uh, It's the time of Passover. It's the busiest time. Uh, in the Jewish calendar, and so the, the the population of Jerusalem had swollen 10, 15 times its normal size. There was a lot of activity going on at the temple, a lot of people uh, selling animals for sacrifice, and uh, what happened was they were taking advantage of people and making exorbitant profits, and Jesus went in, overturned the tables, and just shut all that down, and that's what's incited, just further incited this uh, this uh, conflict that's before the Lord. So let's look in Luke 20. We'll begin reading in verse 27. Then some of the Sadducees who deny that there's a resurrection, they came to him and they asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies having a wife and he dies without children, his brother should take his wife and uh, raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers... And the first took a wife and died without children. The second took her as his wife, and he died childless. Then the third took her, and in like manner the seven also. And they left no children and died. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife does she become? For all seven had her as wife. Jesus answered and said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are counted worthy to attain that age and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, nor can they die any more. For they are equal to the angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But even Moses showed in the burning bush passage that the dead are raised when he called the Lord, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. For He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. For all live to Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We ask now, Lord, that You'd grant us insight through the power of Your Spirit that dwells within us, Lord, that He'd work in this place and draw us, give us ears to hear, hearts to comprehend and understand what You have to say to us today. Father, we we receive this as Your Word spoken directly for us, Lord, and we thank you for it, and we give you praise and glory for what you're going to do through it. In Jesus' name, amen. So this this riddle, if you will, um, of course, challenging Jesus, as we've seen, 
over and over. They continually try. Um, they just keep switching groups of people. It's almost like a competition amongst all of Jesus' uh, opponents to see who's finally going to be able to, to trick him up. And so we come today to this group, the Sadducees, which we see in verse 27. Some of the Sadducees who deny there is a resurrection came to him and they asked him. Now, the Sadducees are a very wealthy, aristocratic group of uh, religious leaders. They are very powerful because the office of the chief priest uh, comes through the Sadducees. So because they were born into the lineage of being able to have control over the temple... That really, if you think a little deeply about this, what you would uh, come to the conclusion here is that one of the reasons why they are so furious with Jesus is that they're the ones who were making all the money in the temple that Jesus went in and cleansed. And so he's basically shut down their, their racket, and so they're not very happy about that. They're well-educated. They're few in number. They're, they, they are much smaller than the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees are a larger group, but they're a more middle-class group of uh, religious people. The Pharisees believe in all the supernatural uh, powers of God, and they believe in all the miracles of the Bible. The Sadducees, on the other hand, do not. They reject not only the resurrection, they reject uh, angels, they reject the Spirit of God, they reject all miraculous works of God. We see... Uh, indications throughout Scripture. For example, in Acts chapter 23, the Scripture says that Sadducees say there is no resurrection and no angel or spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. So they're both religious uh, groups, but they're really normally would be opposed to one another. The Pharisees didn't really care for the Sadducees and likewise the Sadducees for the Pharisees. But when Jesus comes on the scene, they unite in their dislike for him, because he has come and and brought reality uh, to what God uh, truly has said and who God truly is and how man can be reconciled to him. And they don't like that because, of course, they've developed a man-centered system to operate by. And Jesus has just thrown a giant monkey wrench in that whole plan. So the other thing you need to understand about the 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 Sadducees, is that they only believe the first five books of the Bible. So the Pentateuch, the books of Moses, are all that they believe. All the writings of the prophets, uh, they don't believe Isaiah, they don't believe Ezekiel, they don't believe any of that, uh, just the first five books. And so they pride themselves at really being masters at the Levitical system. So those of you that have studied through Leviticus recently on Wednesday nights with me, you know how detailed and how explicit all of that direction is. Well, this is your group that were really the, the, the superstars at the whole Levitical system. They were very big on, on cleansing themselves and separating themselves and doing all of these sort of ceremonial things. But at the same time, interestingly enough, they had absolutely no use for the supernatural aspects of God. So that's this group. So we'll continue. They come to Jesus, verse 28, and they say, Teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother died having a wife and he dies without children, his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died without children. The second took a wife and he died childless. Then the third took her, and in like manner, the seven also, and they left no children and they died. Now, the first thing that comes to my mind is at what point is somebody going to check her cooking? 
Because she's killing husbands like they're going out of style. I mean, I read that and I just thought, if I'm like the fourth or fifth guy, I'm thinking, I'm eating out every night. I'm not eating anything she's cooking. People are dropping like flies here. And so then in verse 32, it says, and last of all, the woman died. So if there's an eighth brother, he's like, whoo, man, I mean, I dodged that bullet. And so this uh, obviously is just a, a made up story. They conclude in verse 33 and say, therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife does she become for all seven had her as wife? Now, what they're doing is obvious. They're trying to trip Jesus up. But at the same time, they're also making light of the fact that Jesus obviously has been preaching and teaching about the resurrection. And they're trying to mock the fact that the resurrection is just really ridiculous. If you really think about the fact that there's a resurrection, that there's a life after this life, that that's just foolishness. And they use this law that's found in Deuteronomy 25, Leverite law, where God has made a way to continue to uh, propagate his people, the children of Israel, where in the case where a man would would die and leave his wife childless with no son to carry on the name, then the brother would come. And so we see that throughout the Old Testament. And so they're, they're just mocking the whole idea that it's just sort of ridiculous. Now, if you think about uh, this for a moment, in this context, when we're all sitting in this room, we can have all sorts of conversations about heaven. And it seems, and when we're all... Uh, together and we, we just delight to think about it and to talk about it and to learn about it and, and all the glorious things about heaven and the resurrection that just uh, delight our soul. But when you are outside of this context, in other words, you maybe find yourself in some uh, public arenas at work, around uh, unbelievers, so on and so forth, it seems a bit odd. But people will tend to, you know, if you say... Uh, my experience has shown that that really any conversation about heaven, um, when there's no immediate need to have a conversation about heaven, is seen by people as really sort of frivolous, kind of pie in the sky, just sort of silly. And sometimes we as believers have a tendency to just sort of retreat from having those conversations because they almost, people just make you sound so silly. You see... Everyone wants to talk about heaven at a funeral. Everyone. But no one wants to talk about heaven around the water cooler. But the very same people, when someone dies that they care about, will flood into the funeral home. And man, they're hanging on every word a guy like me says about heaven. But you see, because it's pressed in upon them. But just in a public context, just in a uh, you're just standing around with a group of people. It just seems like, you know, are you really are you really thinking? I mean, come on. There are so many people in this world that would want to uh, belittle us as Christians, make us seem so backwards and so simple. You know, can't you just think on your own? You know, you believe in this heaven thing. Like, what's that all about? What are you going to do? Just float around and wipe skirts and play the harp all day and eat marshmallows. I mean, what's that all about? How do you know about that? What is that? You know, I mean, it's just 
And it's pretty much the same argument. People would always say, well, well, how do you know that? Well, how do you know? And so Jesus, in just the marvelous, marvelous way that God has in, in bringing truth into utter error with such grace and eloquence, he answers them in verse 34. He says, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. Uh, well, we, we know that, Lord. We, we understand that. But those who are counted worthy to attain that age, he says, and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. So that what happens in heaven is different than what happens on earth. In other words, that in heaven, we don't marry the way we marry here. It's different. So what does that mean? Does that mean that we're all just friends in heaven? So everybody's just everybody's friend because, I mean, that sounds okay, but that doesn't sound really that great now, does it? Well, it can't mean that. It cannot mean that we're just friends. It cannot mean that we're... That, that there's anything about a relationship in heaven that is less intense than a relationship on earth. All of our earthly relationships are merely shadows of what will be. They're merely uh, dim representations of what can, will be, and shall be in glory. And so the love that we see, for example, within the Trinity, between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and the perfect love that exists there, the love that we might imagine that exists in, in heaven between God and His angels who worship Him is a closer representation to the relationships that we're going to share when we go to glory. You see, we're going to know each other when we get to heaven, we know that because Jesus is going to go on and he's going to say that even Moses, he, he, uh, he told Moses, I'm the Lord of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. In other words, Abraham was still Abraham and Isaac was still Isaac. And so we're going to know who each other are. But, you know, it brings up a very good question. And probably the reason that this particular question and response are recorded in three of the Gospels, the exact same uh conversation is recorded in Mark chapter 12 and in Matthew chapter 22 is because God knew that a lot of us would probably wonder this same thing. In other words, there's some of you here who have been widowed and then remarried. Some of you have been widowed multiple times and remarried. Some of you have been married several times and maybe you've wondered, well, who am I going to be married to when I get to heaven? And so Jesus is answering that question. He's saying that well, we, we, are, we are married and given in marriage in this age, but in the age to come, we'll neither marry nor are given in marriage. In other words, our love for one another will be more intense in heaven between all of us. As we are all there, we will love each other in a greater way than even the love that we experience now in a sinful world between a husband and a wife. And so you're not going to have less of a relationship. You're going to have a greater relationship. Think of it this way. That maybe if for you, you sit here this morning and you think, you know, I can't imagine spending eternity and not being married to my husband or not being married to my wife. Well, I'm glad you feel that way. 
But what I want you to understand is that when you get to glory, you are going to have a closer relationship to your current husband and wife than you do right now. You're going to experience a love for your husband and your wife that you can't even imagine right now. And you're also going to have a love for the people around you and especially for the Lord that you can't imagine right now. It's not going to be less. It's going to be better. But Jesus realizes who he's talking to. Jesus realizes those that, uh, you know, seek to stump him and to uh, press him. You know, it's interesting that the Apostle Paul, as he's teaching about marriage in the book of Ephesians, when he gets to Ephesians chapter 5, and he quotes from Genesis and he talks about that this is the reason why a husband will uh, leave and they'll cleave, a wife will leave and cleave to her husband and the two will become one flesh. And right after that quote, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 32, he says, This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. That the, the picture of the earthly marriage is, is a, a glimpse, a shadow of the, the love that God has for His people. But we're incapable in this flesh, in this world, to be able to experience the fullness of the love of Christ that we're going we're gonna to experience for all of eternity in glory. You know, whenever you have a conversation about heaven, the hardest thing to do is to, to just convey to people that there's so much about heaven we don't know. There's so much about it we don't know. But what we do know is that everything about heaven is infinitely better than everything we've ever experienced here on earth. And so, for example, children will ask me questions like, well, Mr. Tony, uh, well, what will we do when we're in heaven? And I say, well, what do you like to do here? What is, what is the funnest, greatest thing you've ever done in this life? And so they'll tell me. And then I say, well, in heaven, that is going to be a million times better. And you can do it as much as you want to do it. And so me and Chuck are going to have a great time. It's going to be awesome. So look at what Jesus says. Those who are counted worthy in verse 35. Who is counted worthy to attain that age? Only those who come through Jesus Christ. To be counted worthy is to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. If Jesus Christ is not your Lord and Savior, you cannot attain that age. There's nothing we can do to earn it. There's nothing we can do to achieve it or to deserve it. But it's just simply through the grace of of the Lord Jesus and His sacrifice on our behalf. And He says, "...and the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage." Verse 36, "...nor can they die anymore." They're going to live. We're going to live forever. For they are equal to the angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. So like angels, we will live forever. Angels don't die. They live forever. We will live forever. But more than that, we're going to be sons of God, sons of the resurrection." Then Jesus pulls them right back to Moses. And he says, even Moses in the burning bush passage said uh, that the, when the dead are raised, that the Lord himself called himself, I am the Lord of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. 
So he takes them back to their own book of authority. Remember, they only believe in the first five books of the Bible. And so he brings them right back to where they believe. And he points them right to the book of Exodus. He points them right to Moses. And he says, well, now, what did Moses say? And so he quotes from Exodus chapter 3, verse 6, where the Lord says, I am the God, the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And so does it really matter if we believe all the words of Scripture? Does it matter that, that we uh, say that every single word in Scripture is true? And someone might say, well, I mean, I believe in the Bible, but I don't believe in every single word. Well, what does Jesus think about that? Apparently, Jesus thinks it's pretty important that we believe that every single word in Scripture is true because here he's simply using verb tense to illustrate the fact that God is the God of the resurrection and that he never dies and that those are his never die. Because he says that the Lord says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Now, when Exodus three comes around and God says that those three men have been dead for a long time. He didn't say I was the God of Abraham. He said, I am the God of Abraham. In other words, so if you uh, have, have, have lost someone in your family, maybe you've lost a, a parent or a grandparent, and then you meet someone who knew them, and they would say to you, well, I was a friend of your grandmother. I was a friend of your grandfather. God doesn't say, I was the God of. He says, I am the God of. That in the moment that Jesus is having this dialogue with the Sadducees, God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That they're there right right now with God. The, think about what the Lord says in Matthew chapter 8. He said, many will come from the east and the west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. You see, they, they've been dead. And yet he's saying, no, they're going to sit down. Jesus has been talking about the resurrection. He's been talking about the, the fathers of the faith. He's been talking about Old Testament saints using just the present tense as if there's nothing strange about it whatsoever. And then he says, for he's not the God of the dead, but he's the God of the living. For all live to him. You know, it's interesting that in Mark chapter 12 and in Matthew 22, where this same dialogue exists, they give us just a little bit different uh, slant on the response that Jesus gives. When Jesus responds initially to their question about whose wife will she be in the resurrection, Mark twelve twenty four records, Jesus answered and said, Are you not therefore mistaken because you do not know the Scriptures nor the power of God? You see, the issue here really is not necessarily about the resurrection as much as it is about the people that are taking Jesus to task. Because, you see, the Sadducees pride themselves on their great knowledge of the Scripture. Jesus uses the Scripture that they believe in to illustrate their ignorance about the Scripture that they claim to be so knowledgeable about. And notice the relationship that always exists between Scripture and the power of God. You see, they know the Scripture, but they don't understand the Scripture. They have memorized the Scripture, 
but they can't apply the Scripture. And so what they deny about God is not the fact that He said certain things. It's just the fact that He does certain things. They have this view of God similar to the view that we see today so prevalent where maybe I believe in God, but all the miracles seem to be a bit much. Their head is full, but their heart is empty. Now, just stay with me for a moment. Let's just think about this for a second. Think about all the stories in the Scripture that are taught in Sunday school. So, you know, as uh, Alyssa is getting baptized and you're watching her video and she's talking about uh, Miss Martha and Miss Hannah and how much she loves her Sunday school class, so... Miss Martha and Miss Hannah are teaching her about the Red Sea and Moses leading the children of Israel to freedom across the Red Sea on dry ground. And maybe they're learning about how God shut the mouth of lions when Daniel was thrown in the den of lions. Maybe they're learning about Jesus who calms the, the storm and the seas with just a word. Maybe they're learning about the time that God made the sun stand still. And some people hear that and they hear this information and they just think, well, aren't those just nice stories? But when the reality takes hold in your heart that that actually happened, that God did those things, that the God of the Bible is very intentional about every detail, every word and every tense of every word in the scripture because he wants us to know exactly who he is and exactly what he's done. And he tells us under no uncertain terms that he is a God of immeasurable power and might. And when that takes hold in a life, when you begin to believe that God did those things. Now, Stay with me here. Some of you have been in church for a long time. And some of you have just sort of let all those truths about all those wonderful stories. And so when people start talking about Noah and the ark, you just kind of let that roll over into some category in your brain where you keep just stories about things. And you say, well, pastor, how do you know that? I know that because I hear small, empty prayers. I hear prayers from people that don't sound to me like they believe in a God who parted the Red Sea or who makes the sun stand still simply because His people need it. I don't hear prayers that believe in their heart that our God is capable of doing anything with anyone anytime He pleases in any way in which He pleases to do it. And what happens is, is that when the miraculous nature of God becomes something that we try to bring into scientific understanding, when we try to squeeze it into what our realm of thinking, when we come up with all of these brilliant reasons of how the Genesis account of creation is merely just some uh, wording, but that it, it, it doesn't literally mean what it says because that just simply doesn't make any sense. And then if you watch the television this week, you know that, Really, we don't even have to wonder anymore because now the God particle's been discovered. 
I mean, you should go home and, and, and get on your computer, turn on the news and find out that the big Hedron uh, Collider that the European scientific community spent $10 billion developing that the big news this week in the scientific community, all the physicists are so excited because the God particle has been discovered. You see, you didn't even know that. Where have you been? What are you doing? Like a bunch of dummies sitting at home reading your Bibles. And all the mysteries have been solved. And so now we have the God particle. And you know what the God particle explains? It explains the, how the Big Bang Theory happened. Now, here's what I love about that statement. I'm sitting there. I just woke up in the morning. I'm watching the morning news. And here comes brilliant Einstein-looking fellow with his hair all messy. He's really smart, but he can't comb his hair. And then he says, it's so exciting because it's, it's Einstein's birthday. And I thought, well, look at your hair. You're celebrating it great. So you can't comb your hair, and you're so excited. And this is what he says. That today is a day that we've all been waiting for. The God particle has been discovered. And we now know how the Big Bang happened. To which I said, you mean all this time you knew you didn't know and now you're saying that you didn't? See, why have we been teaching that that's what happened? When we really didn't know. And we still don't know. We're still just as ignorant as we were, but we got $10 billion in some 17 mile around super collider to prove that there's a God particle. Well, great. I'm so thrilled. I'm so excited. But you know what? That's the world that we live in. That's the world that a lot of Christians exist in. That the supernatural nature of God just sort of eludes us. It just leaves us and we begin to live our lives as if we serve some small little puny God who's not capable of doing great things. And so when we pray, do we pray expectantly? Do we do we pray audaciously, grand, unbelievable prayers and ask God to do amazing, wonderful things? I mean, there's only one way that happens. I'm just being honest. I love you. I want you to know that before I say this. In order to pray that way, you cannot read the Bible. You just can't. I mean, you might, you might listen to some sermons. You might have a little devotion book or sing a little Christian jingle along the way. But there's no way you could read the Scripture. It's page after page after page of the miraculous power of God. And then if that's the God who, who you serve, if that's your heavenly Father, if that represents your salvation, then what happened? He is the same today, yesterday, forever. This is our God. And so he, Jesus is really pressing in this point that you, you, you know things about the Scripture. You've memorized the Scripture. You understand the way all the words fit together. But you miss the whole point because you deny the power of God. And so Paul tells Timothy, this is nothing new. In 2 Timothy, Paul is, is at the end of his ministry. He's handing the reins over to young Timothy. And he says, you know what? You, this is who you need to avoid. This isn't new. This is, this is what's always been. It's getting worse. It's going to continue. And he said, there's, a, there's people all over the place that have a form of godliness but deny its power. 
And from them, you need to turn away. You need to turn away from them. You see, I had a conversation with a young man a few weeks ago. And, and we sat down and we began talking. And he started crying and just you know, was very, very upset. And as we just, you know, I tried to, you know, comfort him and try to... And uh, so as we talked, we finally got down to what really is going on. And he looked at me and he said, Sir, he said, you don't know me. He said, I don't know you. He said, but I'm about to tell you something that's probably going to make you angry. And I said, well, why don't you try? And he said, I'm a homosexual. I'm gay. And I said, how do you know that? And he said, well, I was born that way. And I said, I want you to know something. That first of all, that doesn't make me angry. But I want you to know that the God that I serve, my heavenly Father, is powerful enough to change anything and anyone. And I said, when God came into my life, I was no further away from Him than you are right now. And my God has the power to make what you cannot understand culturally, scientifically. You can't understand how that can be so. But He can do that. And I said, furthermore, God can not only change you at the very core of who you are, but He promises that He will do that for all of His children. And beyond that, I said, have you ever considered that the God of the universe who holds the stars in place, the one who created everything that you know, that God, He certainly has the power to give you the strength to live a life of celibacy, to live a life of monogamy. He can do that. See, whatever His will is, He can do that. And you see, the course of our conversation didn't exist around the nature of his sin. It existed around the power of my God. Because that conversation is no different from any other conversation. The problem is, is that we forget God is able. He is able. We, there's nothing too hard for him. It's not too difficult. It's not, there's not certain things. Oh, well, that, that there, I mean, God can't fix that. That's the Sadducees, don't you see, of today. It's still so alive and true. Don't we want to be a people that serve an awesome God, that believe in all of His power, that sit and, and, and dwell upon His might with our Bibles open and just believing as we read? Look at what God said. Look at what He said. Everything He ever said, He did. Everything He ever promised, He's accomplished. There He is. It's the power of God that separates Him from everything else. I mean, we're, we're not here today to be religious. We're here today to be Christians. Christianity is not a religion. It's a relationship with the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. 
And understand that this, this group of people that's challenging Jesus on the resurrection, they thought, well, that's just silly to believe that. That's just silly. And it's, isn't it interesting that on the very week that all of this scientific research, I mean, they're saying the biggest scientific breakthrough in generations. That it happens this week. That it revolves around physics. And I'm studying this passage of Scripture. And all I've been thinking about is I've studied this Scripture every single day. All I can think about is how the scientists in my family mock me for my relationship with the Lord Jesus. How silly they think it is that I believe in heaven. And I'm sitting there watching the television and all the people marvel the God particle. And here he is in black and white. It's so plain. It's so clear. It's so pure. It's so true. And you see, when we, when we come and we just think, you know, I, everything's got to add up. It's all got to make sense to me. Really? It's all got to make sense to you. Have you read the Scripture? There's so many things in the Bible that I, I can't comprehend. I can't imagine. I simply can't. But there's enough of it that I can that I'm willing to place my faith in that which I can't and walk and say, Lord, I know. And beyond that, the very people in my own family who use science against me every chance they get are quick to say, well, you're such, a, you're such a different person. Your family is so different. What is it about you? Why do you have such peace and such confidence? How do you, the way you love each other. They travel all over the world speaking at conferences about physics. I travel all over the world walking into mud huts and speaking about Jesus. And they think, what is it? And I think, how can you not see it? It's right there. It's right there. And here's the Sadducees, Jesus right before them. And they refuse they refuse to see him for who he is. You know, if I'm at home, sometimes I'll be at home and I might be working on a project. I might be, you know, out in the garage or in my shed or, uh, you know, get my Bible, sit in my chair and shut my door. And it won't be long after I start doing something that all of a sudden I'll hear this Oscar wants to come in. 
our little dachshund, wants in the door. And he's going to stand there and scratch on the door until you open it. And you know what I always think about? I always think, Oscar doesn't know what's going on on the other side of that door. He doesn't care. The only thing he cares about is that I'm on the other side of that door. You know, rather than spend all our time thinking about exactly how things are going to be in heaven, why don't we just care about who's there? Jesus is there. Everything else is going to be a subset to that. I just want to be there because He's there. And He said, if you knock on the door, I'll open it and let you in. So this morning, where are you in your walk with the Lord? Have you come to a place in your life that you're ready to walk by faith and not by sight? To realize that the circumstances of your life are such that God has been making Himself knowable to you. He has brought Himself to the forefront of your attention for a reason. Because He's real and He loves you and He has a purpose for your life. But the only way that you're going to be worthy to attain the resurrection is through Him. And isn't it true we all need to be reminded this morning that as we pray, as we serve God, as we are generous, as we give of our time and our talents, do they reflect the fact that we believe in the miraculous supernatural power of the God of the Bible? Do you kneel down as a son or daughter of the king and bury your head in your hands and pray sheepishly to a little God who's probably not listening, certainly doesn't care, and may or may not be able? Or do you come in brokenness and scoot yourself up to the table of the king, to a God who can do all things? He can do all things. And rest assured, He has promised to leverage them all for your good. And so whether you understand it or not, He is able he is capable. He hears you. He promises in, in His Scripture that He hears what we say and He cares and He loves us. And that our lives ought to reflect the God that we serve. They ought to reflect the relationship with the one that we celebrate. Because anything short of that is mere religiosity. It's just zeal for some form, for some structure. But it's not alive. It's not vibrant. And it won't bring salvation. So let's stand. Bow our heads. Close our eyes for just a moment. In the stillness of our time now, let's just ask the Lord to come and move among us in a mighty way. Recognizing and realizing that there are those here this morning that He's speaking to, that He's drawing unto Himself. And that today might be the day that God, through the gift of His Son, makes 
men and women who are far from him, worthy of the resurrection, adopted into his family, beloved sons and daughters. Lord, we thank you today. We thank you for your glorious truth. We thank you for your scripture, Lord, and how you teach us and instruct us and comfort us, Lord. God, we thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus, who came and paid the price that we could never pay. Lord, that through Christ, you have proven once and for all, Lord, that there's nothing, nothing that can stand between us when we come to you. So, Father, in this time, will you do what only you can do, Lord? Will you help us to realize what hangs in the balance here, Lord? God, as we respond to the leading of your spirit, Lord, there are some here you're calling to come and be a part of this fellowship, to join this congregation, to plant their lives in this family and to grow together as a vibrant part of this fellowship. And Lord, we're grateful for that. And we ask that you would, that you would tug on their heart, God, and that they would respond to you today. Lord, there are some who need to come and just bow down and be reminded of your great power and your might and your authority. That, Lord, you are going to strip away all, all the suffering, all the pain, all the fear. It's all going to be stripped away one day, Lord. And we're going to bask in the presence of your glory. And we're going to experience life like we could never imagine it. And Father, there's some here today that you're drawing unto yourself for the very first time to respond. To say... I need to come and follow the Lord in believer's baptism. I need to come and give my life to Him. And God, I know that You're calling me. I know it's You that's causing my heart to beat and my my palms to sweat. I know it's You, the God of the universe, that You care about me. Thank You, Lord. So, Father, will You work? And we're going to give You the praise and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. The altar's open. I invite you to come. If you'd like to come and kneel and pray, you come. If you'd like to come and speak with me or one of the pastors, we're here. We'd love to receive you, pray for you, encourage you. Just respond as the Lord has led and worked in your heart.